0: 33 Verse 14. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in the presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for this morning. God, I thank you that as we navigate our Christian lives, as we navigate the journey of of everything that this life brings with us in this world, Father God, I'm thankful for the reminders of who you are, of what you do for your people and who you are to your people. Father God, I pray this morning that as we've worshipped, as we've come before you today, God, I pray we would not take it for granted. God, I pray that these things that we talk about and the words that we speak and the the, the songs that we sing are more than entertainment, more than fairy tales, more than just great stories of encouragement, God. But that are truths that are rooted in creation, in the history of the world, God, that you have made for your people, with your people, for the good of people and for the glory of your name. Father God, I pray we would be anything but apathetic to what it is you have for us today. God, open our hearts and our minds to the truths of your word. No matter where we are, no matter where we've been. God, you call us to yourself here this morning. God, we love you, thank you, and praise you. In Jesus' holy name, amen. So church, over the last four weeks we've taken time to discuss these names of God. And the the reason why for me and for us as we discussed why we would even begin to go into this, the reason we felt like this was so valuable is because if we can understand how God's people, especially mostly in the Old Testament we're going through these names, how God's people viewed God and knew God, we can know something about His character. We can know something about who He is and what He is for His people. And I think this is something for us, especially because we live in such an information age, we have so much information, we have so many, many things, so much research, so many people, so many diversities of, of opinions and perspectives that for the people of God, even for us, we can get so distracted. We can get so just drawn away from who God is and what God's doing for us and with us and through us. That we can be so disconnected from the truth of who God is that we can just miss everything that He's trying to show us or do with us in our lives. And so for us today, you know, as we've gone through this, we've discussed the Lord is our banner or Jehovah Nisi. And what was that? That was God being the rallying point of Israel, God being the the, the encouragement, the direction, the source of power for these people. And so we talked about the Lord as our banner, and then we also talked about the Lord as our shepherd. What does it mean that God is our shepherd? He's our protector. He's our provider. And not only that, but we talked about the Lord that heals. You know, thinking about that Abba Father, that God that leans into our lives intimately, uh, intentionally, to care and love for His people, not only for physical healing, which He did and does, but also for spiritual healing, which is the greatest thing that we could ever celebrate. And not only that, but then last week we talked about Jehovah Shammah, or the Lord is there. And that in the mess of Israel's exile, in the mess of their destruction, which even this morning will continue to kind of be in their exile, which I think is amazing how a lot of these names are right smack dab into the worst time of Israel's history. Where last week we talked about the Lord is there, that even in the mess, even in their sin, even in their problems, as the enemy was coming to take the promises, the promised land of Israel away... They said they couldn't overtake that land. Why? Because the Lord was still there. Even though Israel had been exiled, even though they had been drawn out of the land, God still protected the promises for His people. And so this morning, you know, this week I truly believe is one of the most important weeks that we approach as a Christian faith. Because I think this is where, for many of us in Christianity, we can find a lot of diversity and opinion on how this is. You know, and so... What these names do, like we said, is they communicate something about the nature of God. And so for Jeremiah, remember we talked about last week, the book of Jeremiah is written leading up to the exile when King Nebuchadnezzar came and took the children of Israel, destroyed Jerusalem, uh, destroyed the land, and pulled the people out. So Jeremiah writes leading up to that point as he's warning the people about their sin and the repercussions of their sin. And then he's writing to them in the midst of their exile, in the midst of the time that they're gone from the land. And God is using sanctifying judgment in their lives to make them better in in the midst of it. And because God is there, as we discussed last week, His plans still prevail until what are His plans? As Jeremiah writes, we'll see His plans. Because God's plan, from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning of time to the end of time, is affecting, to affect the relationship between Himself and His creation, God's intention and His plan for His people is to affect, positively affect the position and the relationship between Him and His people. You know, and, and this imagery just really kind of brings it to life, what we'll be talking about this morning. You know, if we imagine in our minds, imagine in our minds that the, a prince of the greatest, greatest nation in the entire world was set to marry, or did marry, a homeless prostitute. You know, that's a very extreme illustration, but I want you to hear me out. The prince of the greatest nation in the entire world is set to marry a homeless prostitute. She's been living on the street. She's lived a rough life. She's hungry. She's emaciated. She has a mountain of debt. And not only a mountain of debt, but obviously a mountain of shame, a mountain of guilt, a mountain of history. And so in them being married, this prince declares his love for this woman. And not only does he declare his love for this woman, but he says that he's loved her since the beginning. That he says that he's loved her since he knew her. Can you imagine? Imagine in this illustration. Imagine the, the thoughts of the, the prince's family. Imagine the thoughts of the people around, the disgust the discouragement, the, 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 the questions. And so this prince is set to marry this woman with a history, with shame, with debt, with scars, spiritual, emotional, physical probably. Not only does he say he currently loves her, but that he's always loved her. Even in the midst of her lifestyle, he's always loved her. And so in them being married, what is he doing? He's accepting her shame, right? And not only is he accepting her shame and her history and uh, who she was, kind of her, uh, how people view her, but he's also inheriting what? Her debt. Any debt that she has come into the relationship with, he now inherits that. He now takes that on. Her disgrace, all that goes with it, all the questions, all the doubts... He accepts it. But not only that, not only is he accepting who she is and taking on her debt, but she becomes what he is. And what is he? He's royalty, right? He has wealth, he has provision, he has protection, he has status. Church, this morning what we talk about, the name that we discuss, we see in verse 16, the Lord is our righteousness. Or Jehovah Sidkinu, it's a fun one to say. Jehovah Sidkinu, the Lord is our righteousness. And I say that this is one of the most important names that we may face in this study because this is, in all sense, the right standing before God is dependent on our righteousness. And so what is righteousness? When we talk about righteousness, what is that? Righteousness is behavior that is morally and justifiable or right. And so when we think about the righteousness of God, the way we need to imagine this is perfect goodness. Perfect goodness. That there is nothing better, and that nothing less is acceptable, but perfect goodness. And so when we talk about the Lord as our righteousness, what are we talking about? We're talking about how we are not only saved, but we are talking about how we are justified or made right by a holy God. How are we accepted by a holy God? And He tells us, Jehovah Sidkinu. The Lord is our righteousness. This is God's plan for Israel as Jeremiah writes descriptively about the people while they're in exile. But he is also communicating something prescriptive that is prescribed to us to understand God's plan for his people. Is that he would be their righteousness. And so there's three things this morning I want to quickly go through. i got a lot to say so I'm going to try to go through it fast that we can understand about what God is doing on behalf of His people as He is our Jehovah Sidkinu, or the Lord our righteousness. What does that mean? Because Christians view this differently. Churches down the street view this differently than we'll talk about this morning. And this is why this is important, and we have to understand this. The first thing this morning is this, is that this righteousness we're talking about, that God has given this to us through Christ. That this is a gift, the Bible talks about, that has been given to us, that righteousness or rightness or perfect goodness has been given to us. And so how can we know that? In, in, uh, in uh, Jeremiah 33 verses 14 and 15, we see what God is communicating through uh, Jeremiah. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel. And then he also says in verse 10, In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up, spring up for David. And so this righteous branch, and Je- uh, Jeremiah uses several different names to describe who Jesus is is going to be. This is a, a prophetic word that he's speaking here. He's talking about this righteous branch being Jesus. And so what Jeremiah is talking about, he says, I will cause and I will fulfill something to happen through this righteous branch that will grow up from the family of David. And we know Jesus being a of David's. And even Isaiah would communicate this. In Isaiah 61.10 he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Isaiah's writing prophetically about what this branch of David would do. That he would look on the emaciated, homeless bride of Christ and adorn her, the church being us, adorn her, with royalty. Adorn her with provision. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 1.30. Paul talks about this, and because of Him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So God is doing all these things. And listen, so there are are types of denominations of Christianity that see those three things as very separate. That your righteousness, that your sanctification, that your redemption happen in a process that you work through to obtain. And so what we're talking about this morning is that process being one thing that happens through Christ Jesus. Through His righteousness. Through His good works. And we'll discuss that further as we move. But us understanding that this is only possible. That us bearing the righteousness of God... Is only possible through the cross. Why is that? Well, it's a lot like the marriage of the prince and the prostitute. Is that in the marriage, the prince took on the debt. The prince took on the shame. The prince renamed her. The prince gave her provision and wealth and property. At the cross, Jesus did the same thing for us. At the cross, Jesus took our shame. The Bible even goes as specific to say that He took on and, and, and nailed to the cross to cancel the debt that was held against us. Jesus took all that we had and He bore it on Himself. Our sin, our shame, He brought it to the cross. Righteousness in God is only possible with the cross. It is only possible through the, through the, through the death of Jesus Through the, the substitutionary atonement where Jesus atoned us with his goodness by taking our sin and shame. That substitution had to happen, and listen, we can't afford as Christians to ever think that there is. surely there's not a God that would ever require that type of death, right? Surely there's not a God, as some would say, that is so barbaric that He would call require death for some type of punishment or some type of payment. But listen, we can, only people who don't see the weight of sin would ever in a million years believe that. Do you look around at the world and see the way that sin affects people? It's it's destructive. It's damning. It's hurtful. It robs us of joy. And so what God has done through His Son, Jesus, is to reestablish our ability to enjoy life that He has given us through Christ, to have joy, to have peace, to have comfort. And we can't have that if we are riddled with sin and, and overtaken by the sin of this world. We can only have that through the righteousness of God. We can only have that through His righteousness and we can only have His righteousness if sin required a punishment and if that punishment was satisfied. But our God did that for us through Christ. He has offered that for us in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God or that we might have... God's righteousness. Church, we got the robe of righteousness, and Jesus was stripped naked. You know, we got the the jewels, the, the rings on our hands of royalty, and Jesus had nails pierced through his. We got the crown of glory and righteousness and royalty, and Jesus had a crown of thorns pressed against his brow. Church, Jesus took on all these things for us so that we could live. Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so because this idea, and we've talked about this before, of this imputed righteousness or righteousness has been given to us uh, and our sin has been passed to him, uh, we have taken on this perfect goodness. Remember, we said righteousness is perfect goodness. And this means that we are made righteous or perfectly good in the sight of God because we are clothed in the sinless life of Jesus. And so we celebrate as Christians not only the fact that Jesus died and rose again for us, but we also celebrate the fact that Jesus lived. And not only did Jesus live, but He lived a perfect life. And because Jesus lived the perfect life of perfect goodness or righteousness, Jesus imputes that goodness or imputes that wardrobe to us so that when we have put our faith in God and trusted in the work of Jesus on the cross, when God sees us, he sees the perfect work of Jesus. He sees the perfect work of Jesus. And so what does that mean? What does that mean? And so this is where The church, as we're afraid to navigate some of these things, because we believe if we communicate this, then it gives people the right to sin. It gives people the right to live however they want, and I don't believe that. I refuse to believe that. I refuse to not preach about the goodness and the righteousness of God, because I'm afraid it'll give people the right to sin. Listen, if people want to sin, they're going to sin, regardless of what I say. But if we can understand the goodness of God in giving of his righteousness to us. So that means when I am clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, nothing I do here affects that. Do we understand that? Can we accept that this morning? That's not me, that's what God's Word says. Even if church after church we've attended and been to refuses to present it that way to us, I'm telling you this morning that when the righteousness of Jesus has clothed us, nothing we do here affects how God sees us. And that makes us nervous, right? Because we want to be able to say to people, unless you do this, 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 and this, God is not going to accept you. But that's not the case. That's not the case Because if God has given us his righteousness through the death and and resurrection of Jesus, because he lived a perfect life, who am I to strip that away through my sin? Now, does that mean that I have the right to do whatever I want, whenever I want? No, it doesn't. But what that does tell me is when I do find myself doing those things that, like Paul says, I know I shouldn't do, but I do, it doesn't change my standing before a holy God. It doesn't make my seat at the table be stripped away from me and given to someone else because the the nameplate at my seat at the table doesn't say Jake. It says Jesus. The righteousness that is representing me is not my own, but it's Jesus's. The Bible says my righteousness is like filthy rags. It's like garbage. It's filth. There's nothing I can do on my own to be good enough to be perfectly good, to be perfectly righteous. But it's through faith and who God is and what God's doing that we obtain that imputed righteousness. And we even see that in the very beginning in Genesis 15, 6. The Bible says, and he believed, this is talking about Abraham, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God counted Abraham righteous before he took a single step But because he had faith in who God is and what God would do, he was made perfectly good. Not because of his own goodness. But for Abraham, it was a future righteousness that would come. And God would preserve him until that time. But for us, we get to know about that righteousness up front. We get to know about that goodness up front. And so the second thing this morning, and I'm moving way slower than I need to is the enemy of God's righteousness for us, that the enemy of the Lord being our righteousness is this, is that self-righteousness robs us of living in His righteousness. Church, self-righteousness robs us of living in His righteousness. And He tells us in verse 16 of Jeremiah 33, when He's talking about this branch of uh, David, He says that Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. He says through this branch there will be salvation, there will be a surety, all these things will be present with this. And so what we have to understand is in these two things, Israel could not do on their own. They needed this righteous branch. Church, the same thing for us. We cannot dwell and live securely or truly saved on our own. This is not something we can accomplish on our own. Just like Jeremiah is telling them here. When we navigate, and people out there navigate pre-Christian life, or even if us as Christians live our lives with the motivation of self-righteousness, we can never truly grasp the truths of what it means to be saved or assured. This is where the disjunction is for people around us. Whether it's people outside of the church, or even people inside the, the church... All throughout my ministry, I have had conversations with people who constantly question their salvation. That is a, a sad place for us to ever dwell. I've, been, I've seen people. And, and, and you know, the, the, the fact that, that we would ever feel the need to be baptized more than once, it shows us that we're not hearing what God's true righteousness is for us, right? Now, I'm not saying there aren't times in our lives where we navigate some uncertainties and we just need to be reassured. But if, if we're ever at a place where people are being baptized multiple times, that is an indicator that we're not hearing the gospel properly. We're not hearing what it means to be righteous by Jesus because we're feeling like we're continually grasping for something. And for us as Christians, we should not have to live that way. He calls us and wants us to live securely and confidently in the salvation and the assurity that He gives to us. This is the opposite of what God desires for us to live in self-righteousness. Why? For one, because we can't be righteous on our own. Remember, righteousness is perfect goodness. And so for us, we have to ask the question, and even people outside of the church, they say, well, I'm a pretty good person. Well, then we have to ask the question, well, what is good? What dictates goodness? What is the standard of good? And I think a lot of times we either as Christians or even people outside of the church believe, well, I can be good. Like, I can be good, but good compared to what? Or good for who? Or good for what? Because a lot of times our comparisons for goodness is comparison to someone in proximity to us that we can see their life or see somebody on TV or hear about somebody and be like, well, I'm better than that person. But if righteousness is what God calls us to, we're not just asking for good. God's called us to perfect goodness. Can we be perfectly good? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves. The, the, the reality is, is, for us, we don't not only have the, uh, the right, but church, we don't have the ability to dictate what is good. Because our good is unable to be perfect goodness. And why is our good unable to be perfect goodness? Because church, if we're honest with ourselves, there's no time that we've ever done something good. And I'm not saying this is necessarily wrong, but it shows us that our good can't be perfect goodness. Anytime we do something good, what does it do to you? It makes you feel good, right? We like to feel good. So if doing good makes us feel good, then even if we're helping someone else, there's still this inner part of us that our motivation is for us to feel good, right? So there's still an ounce of selfishness. Even, the, it's, even some of the greatest things that maybe have done in human history, they're still tainted By the sin of pride. Because we like to feel good. We like to be acknowledged. We like for people to tell us we're doing a good job. That part of us is what separates us from Jesus. That part of us is what separates us from perfect goodness. We we are unable to be perfectly good because we can't disconnect ourselves from the flesh. The flesh seeks satisfaction. The flesh seeks joy. The flesh seeks all these things. The standard of good isn't us or any goodness we can accomplish, but the standard of good is God. Perfect goodness is the standard. I don't know about you, but I can't do that. Listen, and Paul even said, Romans 8.8, he says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I'm not making that verse up. It's in there. You can read it. Those in the flesh cannot please God. We cannot please God. Our righteousness is not good enough because we are addicted to how doing good makes us feel and that makes it not pure goodness. Pure goodness is good without the expectation of return or without the enjoyment of the doing. And not only that, the second thing is this, that it robs us of ever knowing the confidence and assurance of His work in light of my failures. Self-righteousness robs us of the confidence and assurance that comes in the midst of our failures. Because if we're living and navigating our life by self-righteousness, when we fail, then we feel as if we've failed our calling. Right? We feel as if we've fallen short of the expectation. When you navigate life through self-righteousness, we create checklists, to-do lists. We create guidelines that we must abide by because by this standard, by this, this, this set of rules, this defines my righteousness. And so we think it's ourselves, but really it's the rules that we've placed on ourselves. And so what happens is whenever we fail to live according to that self-righteous rule of thumb, then we feel we've failed. And so what happens is we feel like we've gotten off the path. And so as we've so-called gotten off the path, as it's been preached time and time and time again, well, you've gotten off the path, we've got to get you back on the path. Once we've gotten off the path, what do we do? Then we begin to question whether we were ever on the path. And not only do we begin to question whether we were ever on the path, then we begin to ask ourselves, is it really even real? Is there even a place for me? Can I even be on the path? Do I even have the sense enough to walk in the direction and on the path that God's called me to? Do you see how this begins to to kind of snowball into this big place where a lot of times, and you know people, I know people very close to me, that they lift up their hands and they're like, I can't do this. And the problem is, is because they're trying to do it through self-righteousness because they've either been to a denominational background that teaches it that way, or they've been to a so-called church that teaches them that you better get to doing, because that's what God's called you to to be at this point. You better do, do, do before you get. You know, and so what we end up doing is we end up aligning, aligning ourselves with every other religion in the world that says to get to your God you better do, rather than understanding that our God did to get to us. That's the difference between our Faith and every other religious faith in the entire world is how we view getting to God. True, pure Christianity is getting to God because God came to us. Every other faith, every other religion in the world says that you get to your God by how you work to get there. But when we have put our faith in Jesus, that righteousness clothes us and we are different. John Calvin said this. He said, we shall never be clothed with the righteousness of Christ except we first know assuredly that we have no righteousness of our own. There is no righteousness that we bring to the table. Because unless it's perfect righteousness, perfect goodness, then it's nothing. And the last thing is this, and I'll be done. Is that our purpose in the midst of all of this is to pursue righteousness. Now, I know that seems contradictory, but even though as Christians, if we have put our faith in Jesus and His work on the cross on our behalf, we are clothed in the righteousness of God, God still calls us to pursue righteousness. Matthew 6.33, He says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Jesus inviting His people to continuously seek righteousness. And so what does that mean for us? That means we seek perfect goodness. Will we ever accomplish perfect goodness? No, but this is where we combat the idea that if you teach about the grace and love of God and the righteousness that shields us, that people will just do whatever they want and that there's no uh, instruction, there's no obedience required. That's not true. Because what God has called us to do is He's called us to pursue perfect goodness. He's called us to pursue righteousness. He's called us to pursue higher things. He's called us to, to let go of the lesser things, to stop living off the milk of this world and start feeding on the substance of what God has for us. The difference is Is that in our pursuit of perfect goodness, we will not obtain that perfect goodness. But in our not obtaining that perfect goodness, it doesn't remove us from the pursuit. And so for us, church, we pursue righteousness when we pursue the character of Jesus Understanding who He is, knowing what He's done, teaching it to our kids, discussing it with our spouses, inviting others to be a part of it, sharing it with people that we interact with on a day-to-day basis. Pursue the character of Christ and desire holiness more than fleshly indulgence. This is what our calling is. As we pursue righteousness, that we crave holiness... That we, we, we push away the indulgences of the flesh in finding satisfaction, finding lesser things enjoyable or worshiping those lesser things. And this all starts, church, with godly humility. This is where it begins. The pursuit of righteousness begins with humility. It says in Psalm 25, 9, he says, He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. John 15, 5, he says, Apart from me you can do Nothing. So not only can we not be righteous without Christ, church, we can't pursue righteousness without Christ. Because He is our righteousness. Jehovah Sidkinu. Lord, our righteousness. In the pursuit of God and His righteousness, we will find ourselves aware of our sin and aware of its effects and our shortcomings, but not for the sake of shame, but for the sake of growth. And so, yes, the righteousness of God and the holiness we pursue should bring about a mindset that is aware of our sin. It is not wrong to be aware of our sin. It is not wrong to be aware of our weakness. It's not wrong to be aware of our shortcomings. But we can allow what God does not want is those things to hinder us or to imprison us or to keep us from feeling like we can pursue God or serve God. But God uses where we're weak, where we struggle, where we stumble, and He uses those things to grow us. He uses those things to sanctify us. I mean, in Jeremiah, God is literally using the ripple effect of their sin to sanctify them by bringing them into exile, by bringing them under the the command and the control of a, a godless king. But He's doing all this for the good of His people. Not suffering for suffering's sake, but suffering for sanctification, for making us right, for making us holy, for making us better than we are when we began the process. That's what God is doing with us. Martin Luther said, Our works do not generate righteousness. Rather, our righteousness in Christ generates works. Our righteousness in Christ generates the works. And so our calling is to pursue. But for a lot of people, whether it's Christian or non-Christian, the reason that we don't pursue God's perfect righteousness or God's perfect goodness is because we don't believe that we can sustain the process. You know, and, and I was thinking about this this week. You know, in companies that produce some sort of goods, you know, produce some sort of, you know, whether it's uh, some type of food or some type of uh, technology, whatever it might be, all these types of companies, they have kind of two major divisions, right? They have research and development or R&D, and then they have manufacturing. And so when we think about those two divisions, you know, those two things, they have very different expectations, The R&D department has a set of expectations and the manufacturing department has a set of expectations. What is manufactured has an expectation of perfection, right? What is produced, what is put out, the expectation is that it is perfect. I mean, nobody wants to produce a product that comes out of the gate faulty, right? That's never the intention. Because they know if it comes out of the gate faulty, if it's a piece of technology and it comes out crashing, but, and they knew that, if it comes out faulty, then people aren't going to buy it, people aren't going to participate in it, people are going to let it go. And so the expectation with manufacturing is perfection. But the different expectation in R&D is what? Is the expectation of failure. Because it's research. It's development. It's taking an idea, and it's working through that idea, through risks, through pursuit, through start, and start again. The expectation of research and development is to take something, to take an idea, and develop it and, then develop it, and you know what they do in that process? They fail. You know what else they do in that process? They risk. You know what they do in that process? They start again. They begin Again. You know what? This way didn't work. Let's go back to the drawing board. Let's figure it out. But the process continues as it moves towards manufacturing. And I think for a lot of us, and as Christians, and even as churches, what we've communicated is this idea that Christian life is on the manufacturing end. That the product, the expectation of production is perfection. That what God has called you to is to be at the manufacturing end of things. And so that the process is done. Like everything's done. You get saved. You put your faith in Jesus. Bam, all those addictions you had are gone. All those failures you had are gone. All those weaknesses you had are gone. The product is perfection. And so we think to that point, that's what we associate with the Christian life too often. But what I truly believe, when I, what I believe is biblical and what God tells us is that the Christian life is in the R&D is in the research and development. Mostly using the word development there for the illustration. That God is developing us. That He is bringing us to completion. That He is working through us. That the process God has called us to is not a place of a perfect product, but what God has called us to is a place where we pursue, where we're taking risk for the, the, the product. So we're taking risk for the kingdom, so that we're starting and starting again. That maybe we fail, maybe we step, slip up, maybe we stumble, but what do we do? We don't give up, we start again. We go back to the drawing board and we say, you know what, I just need to reset. I just need to come back to this point. I need to remember back to those times when God has been doing great things in my life. Maybe I've drifted away. Maybe I've started to sin. Maybe I've been distracted. And I need to think back. I need to start again. I need to go back and remember, God, I just, I'm so thankful for what you did with me. And remembering and being reminded that if God started something, the Bible tells us He will bring it to completion. God does not abandon a project in R&D. He does not let go of things in development. Our God is hands-on, the Lord our righteousness, the Lord working with us. God is there, God that heals, God that is our banner, God is present in the life of His people. And there is nothing that happens in the research and development end of our life where God says, this project is too difficult, i let go. The perfect produced product does not happen in this lifetime And for us as Christians, we need to stop allowing that thought to hinder us from working for God. And not only that, we need to be part of the solution that goes out to a dying world and says, God has not called you to be a perfect product. God has asked you to step into the research and development of what He's doing in your life. God is doing something in your life. His mercies, Lamentations tells us, are new every day. That even in the midst of our sin and failure, God says that our, His mercies are new every day. That it's not bitter mercies that are still thinking about the sin that we did yesterday. He says our mercies are new every day. Golly, that blows my mind. That the God of the universe that sits out, outside of time and space, that not only knows all of my sin I've committed from birth to now, but He knows every sin I'm going to commit from now to then. And He still Looks at us, looks at me, and he says, "That I am your righteousness, that I am your royal clothes, I am the crown on your head, I am what makes you perfectly good, not you, but me." And then I want to finish up with this verse. Philippians chapter one, verse nine through 11. says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of God, to the glory and the praise of God. Church, the fruit of the result of righteousness is an outgrowth of righteousness in our hearts. That when God is our righteousness, that there is fruit that will develop from that. And it's a process, and it doesn't all look the same for everybody. But it's a process, manufactured by God through Christ and lived out through us. Church, God looks at us as He sees His Son, Jesus. If you have put your faith in Jesus this morning, when God looks at you, He sees His Son. And just as it is impossible for the Father to stop loving His Son, it is impossible for God to stop loving His own. So the challenge for us this morning, church, is to keep pursuing Him. Keep pursuing perfect goodness. Keep pursuing righteousness. Not because we're trying to obtain it, but but as a Christian, you already have it. But pursue it. Proverbs 28.1, he says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. God has given us that boldness to pursue Him. And the thing we can't do is we can't allow shame to be your stronghold. We have to remember that we are not defined by the past, present, or future sins. When we have put our faith in Jesus, we are defined by His perfect goodness and live in His perfect provision. That we are the homeless, destitute sinner on the street that God invites to partake of His wealth, to partake of His royalty, to partake of His goodness. Psalm 130, verse 7-8 through 8, says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Not some of iniquities. Not when He feels like it. All Of his iniquities. And then the last verses, and then I'll really be done. Romans 5 15 through 17 says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift of following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life, rule in life through the one man. Jesus Christ. Church, God has given us a gift that wipes the slate clean. And not only wipes the slate clean, but it, it destroys the slate. The slate, whatever keeps up with our sin, that hinders us, calls us penalty for us, it's gone. Only in Jesus, though. Not in my self-righteousness, not in any other religious organization in the world, not through anybody else's goodness, but through the righteousness of Jesus, that we embrace and enjoy when we have put our faith in Him, that it has been imputed to us, it has been given to us through the work of Jesus on the cross. And once we are clothed in that righteousness, nothing changes that. We may experience the ripple of our sin just like Jeremiah talks about with the people of Israel being brought into exile. They they lose things. They suffer. They struggle. Listen, we're going to suffer. We're going to struggle. We're going to be disappointed. We're going to doubt. But nothing changes our standing before a holy God because our righteousness isn't that tether that keeps us connected to Him. It's the righteousness of Jesus. And that chain cannot be broken. And so because of that, us as Christians should have confidence to lead our families, to lead our spouses, to to lean into the spaces that God has allowed us to be in, whether it's work, whether it's social, whether it's extracurricular. Lean into those spaces and to be Christians. To invite Jesus into those spaces. To be God's people and to communicate the same message to the people around us. That you know what? We talk about this all the time in our town of De Quincey. There are thousands of people that aren't attending church this morning. Most of them not because they haven't heard about Jesus. But most of them because they've heard about the wrong Jesus. Or they've seen the wrong Jesus lived out in Christians' lives. You know what they need? They need authentic believers stepping into their lives. Not for the good of some type of church attendance. Not for the good of somebody's payroll. Not for the good of of any kind of celebration or anything like that. But for the good of that person in the glory of God that we lean into their life, and that we say, let me tell you about a a Savior that came. That He offers you everything that He has for nothing. Just trust Him. Just trust Him. Church, can we bow our heads and pray together? Father God, I, I just thank You for this morning. God, I recognize and know that this morning there are many, many, many people, maybe everyone here this morning, is a professing believer. Church, maybe there... I mean, God, maybe there. we know that there are some here that maybe aren't. Whatever the case, you've made an invitation to us to know and to understand that we are not good nor worthy on our own. Church... The church is just waiting and resting on you, God. And and Lord, I pray for us that we would just see, God, that we would stop being hindered by the self-righteous mentality that we step into our faith with. God, I pray that we would stop holding back because we don't feel like the process is good enough. God, I pray that we would start leaning into the research and development that you're doing in our lives, God, and stop expecting a perfect product. But God, because God, we know, God, we know that the people you were harshest on were the people who pretended like they were a perfect product. Lord, those were the people that you came down on. The people who believed that everything they did was good enough and better than anyone else and was good for you. God, but we know, we know That we cannot be that. And that is not who you've called us to be. But you've called us to be a people that are in process. That are moving towards you. That are pursuing you in your goodness, in your grace, in your mercy. Father God, I pray this morning that if there's any here that have not put their faith in you and in that righteousness... God, I pray this morning that they would have the confidence and the courage to say, Lord, I want you to be my righteousness. I want you to be my perfect goodness that connects me to a holy God and to the eternal glory that you have waiting for those who are yours. And God, also, I want to ask for, I pray that the Christian this morning that's struggling, that's distant, that's living in in self-righteousness or just disconnected from You. God, I pray that they would be reminded that You are their righteousness. And because of that, Lord, we have every confidence, every attempt, every strength we need to pursue You in holiness and goodness and invite others around us to that. God, help us to see a lost and dying world around us that is in desperate need of You. God, and maybe that lost and dying world begins with the people that live under our household. God, give us the courage and confidence it takes to be those leaders to our kids, to our spouses, to our grandkids. God, help us to be those people that are confidently pursuing your righteousness righteousness because you are our righteousness, our Jehovah Seed Kino. God, we just love you. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in your holy name. Amen.